It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And you are listening to the Virtual Bible Study. Welcome into the Virtual Bible Study for July 10th, 2008. We're live on your computer tonight, and thank you for joining us. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn is with me tonight. Good to be back in the studio with you, Dad. Jacob, glad to be here. Glad, as always, to have this opportunity to be with our Internet Bible Study group on Thursday night on the Virtual Bible Study. Glad for those who are listening. We hope you'll keep telling others about it, spread by word of mouth the news about the Virtual Bible Study. We think we have a real opportunity to use this new medium to accomplish a lot of good for the glory of God, and we appreciate everybody who is joining in with us on a regular basis for the Virtual Bible Study. And you look better than you did on that webcam last Thursday night when we were down in Florida. Well, you know, not everybody knows that I was on the webcam. We were we were webcamming back and forth so we could kind of keep, keep track of one another while you were broadcasting from that remote location. But, you know, Jacob, we're, we're thinking about maybe adding a video content to our broadcast. If we get that worked out within the next couple of weeks, we might be able to have it so that people could actually see our smiling faces while we're doing the virtual Bible study. And we won't charge anything else. No, no, no extra charge for the upset stomach. You know, a lot of people, a lot of these, a lot of these big time radio people have internet sources where, but you got to pay, you know, to be a member like Rush Limbaugh, you got to pay to be a member and be able to see him do his program in the studio. We're not going to charge for that. If we do it, it'll be absolutely free. And you'll get your money's worth. That's right. <laughs> all right. Well, you know, stay tuned for that. And I'm looking forward to tonight's program. We'll talk about you all night tonight, Dad. Talk about preachers. Well, it's a, it's a sensitive subject. I want you to be careful what you say because us preachers sometimes can be kind of sensitive. But, you know, in all of the time that we've been doing the virtual Bible study, and we're coming up on almost our third year anniversary, it's at the end of this month, Jake, we'll have been doing the virtual Bible study for three years uh, we never have talked about preachers, and that seems to me to be a, a very legitimate subject that needs some discussion, and so tonight we're going to do that. Wow, but three years, that's almost 165 hours worth of program. Yeah, we, we're, we have over 150 pro, uh, programs archived on the website. Literally, every one we've ever done is there, and there are already more than 150 there. And uh, the last week of this month, I think, Jacob, is is the third year, begins the fourth year of our doing the virtual Bible study. Uh, And and we've been enjoying it, and we hope we're still doing good, and we hope that people are uh, enjoying listening. Um, I think most of our regular listeners know how we do this these days. On Thursday, during the day, I send out a message to our update list, and I ask some questions and begin to ask for your input. And even if you're unable to listen live on that given evening, if you've had a few minutes during the day to send in a response, we can get your response on even if you're not able to listen live. So we think that that's working pretty well. Anybody who's not on our update list that would like to be, it's real simple. Send us an email message to questions at collegeview.com, and in the subject line just put add me to the list, and we'll be glad to get you on the list. Those of you who are on that update list might tell others about that. The more the merrier. We'd like to get 
everybody that we possibly can to be a part of that update list and, and be involved in getting us input for our program on Thursday night. But today, the questions we sent out, and, and I, I sent out a few more questions than, than normal, but there were four of them, pretty brief questions, and we're really looking for fairly brief answers. But question one, how should we regard the use of special titles like reverend or doctor by preachers? How should we regard the use of titles for preachers, religious titles? Number two, is the single pastor system of some religious groups scriptural? Is the preacher a pastor, and can he or should he be a pastor? Uh, that's We're going to talk about the pastor system. Is the preacher the pastor? Can a preacher be a pastor? Number three, what things make a preacher most effective in his work? In other words, what do we what do we need to be looking for in preachers that make them do the work in the best possible way? And number four, what about paying the preacher? That's a sensitive subject to those of us who are preachers. What about paying the preacher? Is it scriptural? And if so, what things should be considered in his pay? So there's plenty of ground to cover there, and we want your input on, on all or any of those questions that we just read. Send us an email message. We want to talk about at least those four general areas. We may get into some other things as we talk about preachers on the virtual Bible study tonight. The email address to use is questions at collegeview.com. The toll-free number to use is 877-381-4567. Those are the ways you participate, and we do welcome your questions or your comments on this subject tonight as we talk about preachers on the virtual Bible study. Let's start out by talking about that question of special titles for preachers. Should we, uh, how should we regard that? What about a preacher who calls himself Reverend so-and-so? In fact, Jacob, you know, some are not even content just to be called Reverend so-and-so. There are those who call themselves the very reverend or the right reverend or the most reverend. What do you think? How should we react and, and what should be our our practice? Should we be calling men by those kinds of titles? That's the question we want to ask. You left off one of those titles in your examples, and that is Father. Uh, we see those in the Catholic Church who go by the name Father, and I believe the uh, Pope is called the Holy Father. Yeah, I believe that's right. So uh, what about those titles as well? Well, I think there's one passage of Scripture that addresses that real, real well. And, and uh, our friend Randy up in Jackson, Missouri, suggested this text, and I think he's right on target. He says, I suppose we should use Matthew 23, 9 as a pattern. I guess there's nothing wrong with using a scriptural title, elder or deacon. However, I think it's best to avoid the use of titles altogether. Anyone who demands to be called by a title or uses a title when he writes his names is, in my opinion, a little egotistical. Maybe, I would add, maybe a lot egotistical. Uh, let's look at Matthew 23. Jesus was condemning the Pharisees. Uh, of course, the scribes and Pharisees got his strongest rebukes. And he said, uh, concerning the scribes and Pharisees, Matthew 23, we might begin reading verse 2. The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments, and love the uppermost rooms at feast and the chief seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the markets, and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But be ye not called Rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. 
But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. So Jesus was pretty plain there in saying, you know, don't assign religious titles to people. Don't call men rabbi or master. He specifically says, call no man your father. And remember, this is in the context of a spiritual relationship. Obviously, we have physical fathers, and the Bible denotes those who are our fathers physically. This is talking about a religious or spiritual connection. And in that connection or in that relationship, we're not to seek or wear titles. We're not to call men by titles. And it, again, as you said, Jacob, it specifically mentions the name Father among one of those. But I think it's very notable that he said, all ye are brethren. In other words, there's an equality among those who are Christ's disciples. There's equality between us as Christians. One is not higher than the other. And, and to assign titles of rank actually goes against what Jesus taught there. All right. If you disagree with us, 877-381-4567 is the number to call. We'd like to hear from you on the program tonight or we will take your emails at questions at collegeview.com. We do have to ask the question, why would we want those titles if we're not looking for some glory, if we're not looking to exalt ourselves, as Matthew chapter 23, verse 12 condemns, where Jesus said, whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he uh, that shall humble himself shall be exalted. So we have to ask our que- our, ourselves the question, why would we want the name reverend or doctor or father or Holy Father, what about that? We'd like to hear from you at 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. As Randy in Missouri has said, anyone who demands to be called by a title or uses a title when he writes his name is, in my opinion, a little egotistical, certainly something that we should consider. Stephen in Pennsylvania has said, how should we regard the use of special titles by preachers? A preacher is one of the scriptural terms used to describe those who proclaim the gospel. He references Romans chapter 10, verse 14, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, in the New King James Version. Teacher is the other term used in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 28 and 29, in the New King James Version. There is nothing in the Bible that refers to someone as reverend or doctor, physician, maybe, but not doctor. Those types of titles usually indicate some type of education, but we do not need a college degree to determine what the Bible says. Furthermore, education is a very prideful thing, and many would use that to their advantage, and others would look at that and determine that the person with a Ph.D. knows more than such a one as Greg Gwynn without any title. Well, I do wonder why religious people want to wear the title, for instance, Stephen. Uh, you know, we can, we're going to talk about reverend specifically here in a minute. But the idea, you know, a lot of preachers are wearing the title doctor. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with a medical doctor indicating with, in, in his name that he's a medical doctor. That, that denotes his qualification to serve in that capacity. But, and in fact, you can't practice medicine unless you have that qualification and unless you can prove that it's so. So that, that's that's appropriate in the case of a medical doctor, but why, even if a man had a doctor of theology, why would he need to denote that in his name uh, other than perhaps to seek the praise of men like the scribes and Pharisees were? So I, I, I'm very much inclined toward what Jesus said when he said, all oh, your brethren, don't try to dis- make distinction between yourselves that way. Uh, Keith in Lynchburg, Tennessee, says there are no titles when it comes to preaching the Bible. There's nothing wrong with studying the Bible for a diploma. But just like tonight, we're studying to show ourselves approved here on the Virgil Bible Study. This is proof positive that anyone can study to save a soul if they want. 
These men may be book smart, but God can use anyone to preach the gospel without titles. So I think we've got uh, several there looking at it the same way we are. Jacob, we got an email that's come in. We do, from Patrick, and we'll look at Patrick's email. Regarding the use of titles, certainly respectful titles should be used if appropriate. If I'm sure you would have no argument against calling someone, for example, Brother Johnson or Deacon Smith. Calling someone by such a term can connote respect or the relationship the speaker has with the object of his address. A more controversial term from your point of view would be father. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 8 through 10, Jesus says, Call no one rabbi, father, or master, or teacher. It can be translated either way, master or teacher there. Jesus did not mean literally to not use these words. The entire 23rd chapter is talking about hypocrisy and pride. This is what Jesus condemns. Insisting that Jesus means not to actually call people these words raises some inconsistencies and implies some bad examples. If Jesus means to call no man father, then one cannot even call uh, one's earthly father father because Jesus made no exceptions. He said no man. We'd also have the problem that since Jesus said to call no man teacher, we'd need to come up with another title for the people who teach Bible classes. Also, we see several examples of the apostles implying themselves to be spiritual fathers. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, Paul calls Timothy, mine own son in the faith. Or in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, he calls Timothy, my beloved child. The apostle John in John 2, verse 1, refers to my little children. Another verse, I, I think that's 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Another verse I would want to point out especially is 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1, which says, Rebuke not an elder, but exhort him as a father. The word elder here is the Greek word presbyteros, which refers to the office of priest. The New Testament contains a plethora of examples showing both the use of the word father and the fact that certain men in the church have a fatherly role in the church. Appreciate it, Patrick, for sending in that dissenting view tonight. Well, uh, yeah, and I always appreciate Patrick's comments, and uh, we appreciate him always participating with us on the virtual Bible study. I would have to disagree with uh, at least part of the conclusions he's reaching. When Paul called Timothy his own son in the faith, when John spoke about his little children, that's different than for me to demand a title and and demand to be called by the the, the term father. Uh, I disagree with him when he says we wouldn't be able to call our physical fathers father. We know that's not the case because the, the scriptures talk about our physical fathers in plenty of places. Uh, and we know we're supposed to show honor to our to our physical parents, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, and so forth. In Matthew 23, when Jesus said, call no man father, he was talking about in the spiritual relationships that we have. In our associations one to another, religiously and spiritually, he said, call no man father. I think, I think that's pretty literal. Uh, well, it's in the, in the context, he's... He's, but is, there are exceptions, as Patrick notes, you can call your earthly father. That's father. right. That's what I'm saying. In the context, the context of it is talking about spiritual things, about spiritual relationships that we have with other people here on earth. Call no man father. It's not talking about our physical relationships, because elsewhere in the Bible, when it denotes physical relationships, it uses the term father and, and refers to our fathers and doesn't forbid us to speak of them in those terms. This is talking about calling someone father in a spiritual relationship, and he says don't do it. 
And it, it, it's it's in reference to that wanting the title for the acclaim and for the elevation that the title bears. That, because that, in the context, that's what the now I think I think Philip. I mean, uh, I think that uh, Patrick agrees because in the context of the scribes and Pharisees there in Matthew 23, that's what they were wanting. They were wanting the honor and glory of men. And why would we want those titles? That why would anybody allow themselves to be called by those titles if it wasn't for that acclaim? And that and that elevation. Well, I, I suppose we could get off and and be criticized for judging motive on that. And, but at bottom line, it says don't do it. And so I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to call anybody father in the spiritual sense, except my father in heaven. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll continue the discussion. We'll take some more of Patrick's comments, and we'll take yours as well. Hopefully, at eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven. Questions at collegeview.com. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study continues after these short messages. After these important messages, we'll be back to take your comments. Email them during this break. This is Jared in Warwickshire, England. Listen to the chat from the virtual Bible study each Thursday night. I'm Joel Glenn, a member of the College View Church of Christ with something for you to think about regarding our children. A survey published in the periodical Pulpit Helps analyzed the question of faithfulness among the children of churchgoers. The results are interesting. It was found that faithfulness in kids was not a function of the size of the congregation, the number of classes and special programs sponsored by the church, the effectiveness of the youth minister. Instead, here is what was discovered. In cases where both parents were faithful, and active, 93% of their children remained faithful to their religious training. When only one parent was faithful and active, the percentage dropped to 73%. When parents were only reasonably active, attended services, but that's all, their kids remained faithful only 53% of the time. And finally, when the parents attended assemblies only infrequently, the children's endured at a mere 6% level. The results of this survey are interesting, but not terribly surprising. We've known all along that people, including children, often learn more from example than from the words they hear. That's why Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven, Matthew 5:16. Parents, have you considered applying Jesus' concept right there in your own home? Are you letting your light shine before your kids? Survey results, our own common sense, and the Bible tells us that this is the only hope that we have to bring them up fearing God. Missed a recent virtual Bible study program? Listen to any of our past programs from the archive section of our website. Now, back to the virtual Bible study. Welcome back into the virtual Bible study tonight. We are looking forward to hearing from you at 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com on the subject of preachers tonight. We're putting the preachers in the hot seat, and it's your time to make them squirm a little bit let's talk about preachers 877-381-4567 questions at collegeview.com jacob we got several questions we want to get to and several emails we want to read but uh before we pass from this subject of religious titles one that we got to talk about is the term reverend and again we mentioned that some people are not content just with reverend you got to have very reverent right reverent most reverent uh and what about that a, a passage that often comes up in regards to that is Psalm 111 and verse uh, 9. Psalm 111 verse 9 says, He sent redemption unto his people. He hath commanded his covenant forever. Holy and reverend is his name. And that verse has been used to say that, that God's name is reverend, and we shouldn't be wearing that name because reverend is his name. And so God's name is reverend, therefore we shouldn't take the name that belongs to God. I, I actually think that that's probably an inaccurate way of looking at that verse. The word it is saying that God's name is 
holy and reverent. If you can't call, if you can't use the word reverent to refer to anybody else, you can't use the word holy to refer to anybody else either. What it's saying though is his name. It's not that his name is reverent. It is that his name is to be revered, and and so certainly we we believe that we agree that we should we should revere the name of Jehovah God. We very much agree to that. But in the Old Testament, that word reverent is found 485 times. About 80% of the times it refers to God, but numerous other times it refers to people. For instance, Moses and Joshua uh, had both been revered or feared. The word literally means to fear or to hold in awe or respect or so forth. Uh, In Joshua 4 and verse 14, both Joshua and Moses are said to have been revered in that fashion. And so I, I think, although I think people have been well-intentioned, I think that's probably uh, uh, sort of a, an unfair argument from Psalm 111 and verse 9. Certainly we're supposed to respect the name of God, uh, but that, that terminology, we should, there are other people who deserve our respect. I would argue against the, the name reverend along with all other religious titles, on the basis of what Jesus taught us there in Matthew 23, where we've already been studying. We should not be seeking those titles. We should not be accepting those titles. We are all brethren. Uh, and so uh, we have the example of Peter. I think as we were pointing out, Peter simply called the Apostle Paul brother, our beloved brother Paul, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was also a highly educated man. But Peter referred to him simply as our beloved brother. We're all brethren. We shouldn't seek to to denote rank or class among Christians by assigning titles, by using titles, by accepting the people calling us by certain titles. We should not want to be elevated again. Whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. And so the humble attitude is the one that as Christians, we need to be striving for. 877-381-4567, questions at collegeu.com. Let's go into your second question, Dad, as time is running along rapidly. Is it right to have a single pastor system, as some religious groups uh, claim, and uh, that, that as they practice, can we have a single pastor? Well, let's make sure we understand how some people are using that terminology. Usually, those who speak about a pastor in a in a local church are talking about what we might also refer to as the preacher, but as one man, he's typically the in-charge guy, and he makes the decisions, and everybody follows his leadership. And that's what we're talking about when we describe the single pastor system, people who use that kind of a system wherein there's a single man who's, who's sort of the head of a local church, and he is, he is the ultimate decision-maker. We don't find in the New Testament that, that 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 is the pattern. And I think several of our respondents, Jacob, have probably commented along that line. You got some there? Randy in Missouri again says, no, I suppose a startup church may have only one man qualified to be an elder or pastor. However, the use of a single pastor in a larger church who rules over the other leaders in the church doesn't seem to have scriptural support. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, says some elders work hard at preaching and teaching, which seems to indicate that some of the elders preach and some don't, but all elders are of equal authority. I think that's true. I don't think that there's any indication of a hierarchy of power or authority among elders in local churches. Uh, By the way, we should point out probably that the word pastor is synonymous with the word elder 
Um, there's some places where we could go to look at that, but uh, uh, Young's Concordance says that the word pastor literally means shepherd or feeder. Uh, Vine's Expository Dictionary says that pastor means a shepherd, one who fleed, feeds or tends the flock. Pastors guide as well as feed the flock. This was the service committed to elders, overseers, or bishops. A pastor is a shepherd or an overseer. That's the idea. And we can see that those terms are used synonymously. In Acts 20, verse 17, Paul called for some men who were called the elders of the church in Ephesus. But at verse 28, he told them to tend, shepherd, be pastors over the church, the flock which the Holy Spirit had given them to oversee. And so those terms, the, the term pastor applies to those who are called elders elsewhere. That term also refers to those who are called bishops. So those are three synonymous terms in the New Testament, and you, you see them used interchangeably. Pastors, elders, bishops are all synonymous terms describing those who are overseers of local congregations. Keith uh, says, I'm assuming that when you say pastor, you're referring to a person in a denominational sense. To that, I say no. It is not okay to have a single pastor, one who rules the church and preaches all the lessons as he owns the church and makes all the decisions. Likewise, if you're talking about a pastor in the sense of the, that the Bible talks about in Ephesians 4, verse 11, to my understanding, a pastor is another name given to bishops, elders, or shepherds, which it is still not okay for just one man to be in control. For in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, the Bible commands we ordain elders more than one in every city. Okay, I, let's talk about that because we've got another email where someone challenges that notion. We've often taught, and I believe it is accurate to teach, that there should be, if a church ha, is, is mature and able to appoint qualified men to the role of elder or pastor or bishop, that there should be a, pl a plurality of such men holding office. In Acts chapter 14, near the end of Paul's first missionary journey, it says in Acts 14, verse 23, when they had ordained them elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord. Notice there were elders, plural, in every church. Uh, so there we see the example of what Paul did in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. Let me get to that real quick. Titus 1, verse 5, Paul says to Titus, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. And so we see the plurality there. We see specifically in Acts chapter 20 and verse 17 in regards to that church at Ephesus, he called the elders of the church at Ephesus. So there were a plurality of elders at Ephesus. And so we're seeing that that uh, Paul himself appointed elders in every church. Titus was told to do so. And we see a specific example in, in Acts 20 of the church at Ephesus that had a plurality of elders. Now, with all of that in mind, we've got uh, Patrick's email in which he says, uh, I want to point out that in Acts 14:23, which says, when they had appointed for them in every city, uh, when they had appointed for them in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they had believed. Paul was an apostle and had authority to appoint or ordain elders. Elders were appointed in every church. But because this phrase uses the plural form, elders, again, from the word presbyteros, it does not necessarily mean that each church had a multiple or any plurality of elders. If one elder was appointed in each church, that would still be a valid meaning for elders were appointed in every church. 
in a previous show, you made the statements that in regards to the qualifications for an elder, that his children should be faithful. Having only one faithful child would fulfill the obligation of having faithful children, plural form. Why have a dual, dual standard for evaluating the intention of the plural form of a word? In other words, my point is that one elder in a church is scripturally sound. Uh, I disagree with Patrick on that for this reason. If we didn't have any specific examples, then we might we might be forced to uh, uh, the conclusion that he has reached. But when we have speci- the difference between the two arguments is that in the case of elders, plural elders in churches, we have the example of that. In addition to the statement, we have the, every legitimate example verifies that there was a plurality. In the case of children or elders as a qualification for elders, we have no examples. And therefore, I think there is a difference. We have additional information in the case of elders that leads us to the necessary conclusion that there should be a plurality in every church. And now, back to our question, can we have a single pastor system? I think the answer to that has to be no, because we're to have elders in every church, and we have specific example of plurality of elders in first century churches. So you would not have any instruction or any indication that the single elder would be acceptable, and you couldn't do it by faith then, since you don't find references to a single elder uh, in the New Testament. That would be my argument. I under, uh, by the way, I understand Patrick's point that he's making, and I think it's a, I think it's a fair question to ask. But I think when we look at all the available information, then then we come to the proper conclusion. So you're saying that they were, they had appointed elders, plural, in every church. Yeah, Titus was left behind to appoint elders in every church. And when we find how the elders were appointed, when it's referencing the elders in the church, it's always referencing that there were more than one in the church that is referenced. There's no indication where they called the elder of the church. They always called the elders of the church. Well, yes, and we could add uh, one more reference. Um, in Philippians chapter 1, Paul greets at the beginning of his uh, epistle to the church at Philippi, Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. The word bishop there, again, synonymous with elders. There's another example of a church that had a plurality of elders. And so I'd have to say that 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 needs to be the proper conclusion on that question. Therefore, the um, the one pastor system is not is not scriptural. Uh, there's no Bible authority for such a system. Now. Uh, well, we're up against break time again, Jay. Let's take that, and we'll come back and wrap that up and go on to some of these other questions. All right. Stay tuned. We'll listen to this week's bullet point and come back on the other side. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study will be back right after this. Are you listening? There's going to be a test on this stuff. Stay tuned. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. Hello, I'm Nick Law from Jennings, Florida. I love to listen to the virtual Bible study and hear God's Word talk every Thursday night. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. A question has been asked concerning the proper use of the term saints. Is it right to use this term to apply to all Christians? Or should we reserve this title for those who have lived extraordinary lives and have passed on to their reward? Well, clearly our understanding of this term has been altered significantly by the teaching and practice of the Catholic Church. In fact, the modern dictionary definition reflects this influence. It says, quote, one of exceptional holiness of life, formerly recognized by the church as having attained an exalted position in heaven, entitled to veneration on earth.
earth, unquote. This is clearly not true to the biblical usage of the word. The word saint comes from the Greek word hagias, which is taken from the same root as the terms holy and sanctified. Each of these suggests being set apart or dedicated to a specific purpose or cause, and thus describes every Christian. In his expository dictionary of New Testament words, W.E. Vine says, quote, this is not an attainment, it is a state. It designates all believers and is not applied merely to persons of exceptional holiness or to those who have died and were characterized by exceptional acts of saintliness. To confirm that this view is correct, note that 1 Corinthians is addressed to, quote, those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, unquote. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, New American Standard Version. Yet these same saints were guilty of contentions, chapter 1, verse 11, carnal-mindedness, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, toleration of sin, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, desecration of the Lord's Supper, chapter 11, verses 17 and following, and so forth. Yes, all the Christians at Corinth were saints, but not all were living as God desired. In fact, Paul said, quote, shall I praise you in this? I praise you not, unquote, chapter 11, verse 22. They were all saints, but they were not all living praiseworthy lives. So the term saint has been perverted through the centuries. But according to the Bible, it is proper to use the term saint to refer to all true Christians. The challenge, of course, is for us all to live up to the true definition of that word. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. Broadcasting around the world with truth that are out of this world. The Virtual Bible Study. Take it away, guys. Welcome back to the program. You talk about saints there in your bullet point, Dad. What about taking that title? Uh, could there be any sin involved in taking on the title well, of saint? You know, sometimes we we, re, we hear people refer to St. Peter or St. Paul, St. John. Well, the Bible didn't use those terms as titles. They were descriptives. They were descriptives of, of a person's relationship with God, but they were not applied as some kind of a special designation that set certain people above other certain people. And that's what we're talking about in regards to these titles. We should not be doing that. We are all one in Christ, and we should not be seeking to, to denote certain ones as of a higher rank somehow or another. All right. We're talking about preachers on the program tonight, 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com are the ways you join in on the discussion. We're looking forward to hearing from you. Um, Jacob, the other part of this single pastor question we ask is, is the preacher a pastor? Can he be a pastor? Should he be a pastor? Um, and in regards to that, we might note that Peter, who obviously was very active in evangelizing and preaching the gospel, calls himself an elder in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. I believe that a preacher could be an elder if he met the qualifications for an elder or a bishop or a pastor. Those qualifications, and we've talked about them before in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus chapter 1, are the listings of qualifications for those who would hold that office in a local, in a local church. And a preacher could very well meet those qualifications, and if such, he could serve as an elder. But that is not always the case. Uh, for instance, in the case of uh, a young man who maybe even not yet married, could he be a preacher? Certainly he could be a preacher. Uh, there's every indication that that probably was the, the, the situation with Timothy and Titus. And yet they were preachers, they were evangelists, but they wouldn't be qualified to serve as elders. And so uh, in, in response to that question, I would say... Uh, can can an el can a preacher be a, an elder? Yeah, he could be. He could be an elder. He could be a synonymous term, pastor. He could be a pastor, but he'd have to meet the qualifications just like anybody else. So a preacher could be a pastor, and a pastor could be a preacher, but a preacher is not a pastor. 
Not necessarily. Necessarily. Well, they're not. They're not the same. They're not the same. Okay. <laughs> let me get you. Let me get a couple answers. One for, here from Randy again. I don't see the use of the term preacher in the New Testament as it is used today. Where the so-called preacher is the man who delivers a sermon each week to the church. I would hope that the person who does most of the preaching is a pastor or elder, because he is the one giving the principal teaching to the local church. It would be okay for someone not an elder to preach a sermon to the church on occasion, but it should be someone approved and trusted by the elders. I very much agree with that last part of that. In other words, the elders are the overseers, and, and they, they should have ultimate say as to who is speaking to the church and teaching the church and make sure that the teaching is sound and accurate. Um, Keith has said, um, well, I think we've already, we've already covered his when talking about the single pastor system there. Uh, and we've got one from Stephen. Stephen. He says, is the preacher pastor? He can be. If he's an elder, then he's also a pastor. If the preacher is a pastor, then he can be both pastor and preacher. Can he be? Should he be? Any Christian should strive to be a pastor, even the preacher, is what uh, Stephen says, and I would agree. You know, there's there's some question, there's some, some brethren have some questions about a, a preacher in a local church serving as an elder. And some people are very much against it, which I don't really understand. Now, I think there's a judgment involved in it as to whether it will work best for a given local church or whether that's a the best judgment to make, but there's certainly no scriptural grounds upon, upon which you could object to a, a man who meets the qualification of an elder serving in that role. Uh, if, he, if he meets those qualifications, he can serve in, the, in that role. Uh, there's some judgment as to whether it, it will work best in a given situation, but I don't think you could object to it on a scriptural basis at all. All right, 877-381-4567, questions at collegeu.com. Two more questions to take before we get to the top of the hour. We'll get into those now. Number three on your list tonight, Dad, was what things make a preacher most effective in his work? We got. I had an interesting email from someone who said, uh, um, "How do you approach a preacher in a small congregation without elders that fully that fully supports financially, but he isn't living up to the group's needs and expectation?" He said, "Really struggling with this issue right now. Lack the courage or confidence to know how to proceed." And so uh, he was especially interested in responses to this question. What things make a preacher most effective? And uh, and we got some other emails suggesting some things there, Jacob. Well, along those lines, I think that um, it would be wise to initially, if, the, if there are some problems with the preacher, to, maybe, to make sure that we look at ourselves first, to make sure that our expectations and requirements aren't unreasonable and are not hypocritical. Dad, the preacher is, can often be put on, to, on, under, on a plane that's different than those of the, a, a normal person who's trying to live like God wants them to live. So as you're looking at a preacher and there may be issues with him, make sure you're not applying a double standard and make sure you're not expecting too much would be my uh, first thing I'd want to consider. Yeah, I think that's really true. I think in case of the preacher or the elders, it's not fair to hold a double standard and expect things of them that are not expected of others. We know that there are specific qualifications for elders. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not speaking in regards to that. But in other words, everybody should be trying to do. Here's a specific example. We've talked uh, uh, recently on the virtual Bible study about modesty. It would be wrong to have a standard of modesty for the preacher and the elders, and then everybody else in the church thinks that they can do otherwise than what they're expecting of the preacher and the elders. A double standard like that is simply no good. All right, and we need to understand that the preacher and the elders are also human, and there will be opportunities for them to grow and to improve. And I need to understand that as well. But what about the preacher who's not uh, performing his, his task as he should? 
All right, let's look at some of these email answers. Um, Keith says, a preacher is most effective when he studies, visits, preaches, edifies, and is genuinely concerned about the people he's teaching. But we must remember we are all preachers to a point if we are true Christians. A couple of things about Keith's that I, uh, comments that I like and I would stress, he's best when, he, when he's involved in proclaiming the Word of God. That's what makes him effective. Uh, really concerned about the people he's trying to teach, but everybody, we, we can't expect the preacher to do the work for us. In other words, whatever he does is his work, but that doesn't say that he's covering the work for everybody else. Everybody else has work to do too. And I think that Keith mentions that there. I think it's a good point. What, what makes a preacher any different than any other member of the church? Are there qualifications for a preacher? Well, there are certain qualifications of faithfulness and so forth, That, but, but those should apply to all Christians. Uh, you wouldn't want to take a man who is a is a novice, one just converted, and put him into a responsible position of doing the teaching when he hasn't learned well himself. I mean, there's certain there's certain things that are necessary. He has to. But you know, you're no different than the next guy on the pew. That's right. No, and and when he says here, uh, the preacher's most effective when he studies, visits, preaches, edifies, generally concerned about the people he's teaching. I think that's exactly right, but you would say the same thing about every other Christian. Every other Christian is most effective when he studies, visits, preaches, edifies, and is genuinely concerned about the other people in the church. Yeah. So uh, I agree with Keith's uh, points. We uh, we are all uh, to be striving to do those same things. But I especially like the fact that uh, Keith did not say he's most effective when he is a very good public speaker who can entertain, who can tell good jokes, who... Uh, very sociable. Uh, he can organize the best party you ever went to. None of those kind of things are in there. That wasn't it. that wasn't Paul's characteristics. He, exactly. he wasn't a necessarily a polished speaker. Exactly right, and he admitted that there. In, I think in Romans chapter two. Yeah, there's a lot of focus though on a preacher who's who's got a a, a slick tongue and uh, really can. I don't mean Romans two. I mean First Corinthians chapter two. Let me read that. He Paul in describing himself said. First Corinthians 2, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I was determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So Paul himself was not a great orator, but he was a great preacher. All right, 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. Stephen in Pennsylvania says, what makes a preacher most effective in his work? Love, applying what he preaches in his own life, studying, going out and spreading the gospel, etc. A lot of people believe that if someone is lost and needs the gospel, then they send them to the preacher being lazy instead of teaching the lost soul themselves. It is all of our work to preach to others. In fact, we are commanded to do so in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. I believe that if we are not teaching others and instead sending them off to the preacher, then we are in sin because we have broken the command in the previous scripture and in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Dad, there's another uh, double standard maybe where we think that the preacher is the one who needs to teach the lost, not us. That's right. Uh, and a lot of people think that's what we pay the preacher for. We're going to get to paying the preacher here in a minute. But a lot of people think that's what we pay the preacher for. He should be out there teaching the lost, but we're not going to get involved in that ourselves because we're not comfortable doing that. We pay the preacher for that. And that's a wrong outlook. I think that's been pointed out plenty of times by lots of people. That's a wrong outlook. Finally, on this question, uh, Randy says, if a preacher meets all the qualifications of an elder as a pattern for his life, that makes him most effective. Every elder is supposed to be able to teach, First Timothy 3.2. 
but the preacher should be skilled at speaking and teaching to be effective. Uh, so he's going to be effective when he is a good student. I think that's necessary. I think we're seeing that theme in these answers. He's got to be a good student himself. He has to have some skill in communicating that information that he has acquired to others. And, 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 and that's the thing that people can grow into and, and achieve a level of confidence and, and uh, um, capacity in being able to teach. And that may come over time. And I think all who preach probably would agree that you, you know you grow in that. You don't. You're not. You're not just necessarily a gifted, talented speaker when you first begin, but you grow more confident in that over time. Uh, but I think the thing to stress is that we're not we're not necessarily looking for someone who's a great orator. Paul himself was not a great orator. We're not looking for someone who's a fabulous entertainer. Not someone who can necessarily tell the most amusing stories and keep people interested because of the antidotes, the antidotes that are included in his, in his uh, delivery. He's based in the Word. He has studied the Word. He knows the truth of God's Word, and he's trying to share that with other people. That's what's going to make him most effective. All right. I think, Dad, the formula for an effective preacher is a simple one, and it goes along the lines of the instruction of Paul to Timothy in First Timothy chapter 4. After he tells him in verse 11, these things command and teach, he goes on in verse 12, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. An effective preacher will be one who is applying the principles of God's word in his life. He's practicing what he's preaching. And if he will do that, then he will be the type of person that he needs to be and therefore can be the example and encouragement to the others that he needs to be as well. Exactly right. That's interesting that Paul said that to Timothy. He also said a similar thing to Titus in Titus chapter 2. Both of these were young men who were evangelists. In Titus chapter 2, verse 7, he says, In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. It was very important in Paul's estimation, if you're going to preach the gospel, you're going to have to be living right, or people are not going to listen to what you have to say. I think that is a very uh, necessary thing, that preachers have to be living right. And, and finally, before we go to this break, one more thing that Paul said to Timothy about his preaching work. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap for themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. But watch thou in all things, endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. Uh, notice, he was telling them, preach it when they want to hear it, preach it when they don't. Preach it when it's popular, preach it when it's not. Don't just scratch their ears. Don't just be positive. He said, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Uh, exhort exhortation is a positive thing, but reproving and rebuking are negative things. Some preachers want to just be positive all the time. You can't get the job done that way. You're going to have to deal with negatives, and you're going to have to be such a person who will not back down on, on the doctrinal truths of the Word of God, even when people are not wanting to hear it. 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. Do jump on the phone or jump on your email. Let us know your thoughts. We're going to take it to the top of the hour right after this. These guys are doing all of the talking. We need to hear from you. Call in now. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. Hello. Hey, Matt. No, I don't have any plans for Friday night. What are you doing? Oh, I won't be able to go with you to watch that movie. 
because Matt, the movie is rated R. Hey, why don't you just come over and hang out at my house Friday night? Great, I'll see you there. Then pleasing to God means that you may have to be different than the crowd. But don't be afraid to stand up for what's right. You just might find it is easier than what you expect. A message brought to you by College of Church of Christ. I am Nestor Sanchez from Arica, Chile, in South America. And I love to listen to the virtual Bible study. And this moment, I invite you to participate in this program, too. Gracias. Share your comment with the world. Call in now and be a part of the virtual Bible study. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to the virtual Bible study, and thank you for being a part of it tonight. And we do want to remind you this program is brought to you by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Find out more about us by visiting our website, collegeview, C-O-L-L-E-G-E-V-U-E dot com or thevirtualbiblestudy.com. We'd like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments about the things that we've discussed on this program or on any program that you've listened to in the past. Talking about preachers on the program tonight, Dad, what things make a preacher most effective in his work? Jason, I believe, is from Pennsylvania and says that the most the thing that will make the preacher most effective is a love and reverence for the Word of God. Amen to that, Jason. Uh, too many preachers uh, put more stock in what men have written and what men have proclaimed and do not have a love and a reverence for the Word of God. Real quickly, Patrick has added, scripturally speaking, being free from worldly concerns is one of the biggest things mentioned in being effective in ministry. The main way to accomplish this is taught in the scripture is celibacy. For, for example, Jesus taught this in Matthew 19, 11, and 12. Paul also frequently taught this, for example, in 1 Corinthians 7, 7 and 9 through 8. Poverty or simplicity is also a great way, as Jesus counseled in Luke 18, verse 22. Well, I think most of our listeners uh, understand that Patrick is uh, who frequently participates with us, and we're really grateful for that. Uh, he's coming from a, a Catholic perspective, and so he's teaching that it, that the way that a preacher could be effective, keeping himself uh, free of worldly concerns, is to be celibate. Now, Paul did say in 1 Corinthians 7 that under the present distress. I think that's a key expression there in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 26. He says, I suppose, therefore, that this is good for the present distress. It'd be better, he says, under those times of severe persecution, it'd be better for a person not to be married. Therefore, if that was the case, they wouldn't have to worry about the, the you know taking care of a wife and children um, and so forth. But there is no enforced celibacy upon anybody. Even in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul goes on to say, uh, if thou marry, verse 28, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh, but I spare you. In other words, he says, in those times, it would be tough to be married, but you haven't sinned if you've married. There's no enforced celibacy. Now, the Catholic Church enforces celibacy upon their priests. And they can't do that with scriptural authority. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that. There is enforced celibacy in Matthew chapter 19, though. That's for those who do not have the right to be married. Only to those who don't have the right to be married, obviously. But one of the false teachings that was forbid was warned against in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, was those who would forbid to marry and command to abstain from meats, which God has created and received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. So, Dad, those who would enforce celibacy on uh, people who God has not enforced celibacy on, and the only people that we see that being the case, uh, those who are unmarried or those who do not have a right to be married, they are commanded to be celibate. But uh, not uh, there is no sin in marrying if you have a right to marry. Paul, even Paul, said this in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, my defense to those who examine me is this. 
Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and brothers and the Lord, uh, brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Uh, they were, Peter, we know, was a married man, and Paul makes reference to it there, and he says he has a right to be a married man if he chooses to be. And so that enforced celibacy of the Catholic Church is just something that's not biblical. And I, uh, I know that Patrick's coming from that perspective, but I'd have to dis- disagree with him uh, on that count. 877-381-4567 if you'd like to join in on the discussion and add your comments. We've got one more thing to talk about on the program tonight. What about paying the preacher? Is it scriptural? If so, what things should be considered in his pay? Well, we got some, some of our emailers who are answering on that. Um, Let's look uh, at Keith first. He says preachers should definitely be able to make their living from preaching the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9.14 says that Paul made his living this way. Galatians 6.6 6 says, let him that is taught in the word share in all good things with him who teaches. 1 Timothy 5.17-18 says, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in word and doctrine. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and, quote, the labor is worthy of his wages. So I think that Keith there has hit upon probably all the verses that I would stress. Uh, certainly Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 at verse 14 that God hath ordained, this is what it says, even so hath God ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. And so that's an important verse, especially for those of us who are preachers, to indicate that it is scriptural for us to receive pay for that work. 1 Timothy 5, 17, 18 says that an elder who also labors in word and doctrine should be worthy of double honor. I think that the first honor is just that honor of the office. The second would be that he would receive pay for doing that work. Uh, Galatians 6, 6, as Keith said, suggests that we should share with those who are our teachers. Uh, so I, I think that's uh, right in line. Randy in Jackson, Missouri says First Timothy chapter five verse seventeen indicates that some elders are worthy of pay. The preacher should be paid fairly for his education, experience, and his responsibilities. I've heard of some other methods that can work also. Some churches pay the preacher the average secular pay of all the elders. Some pay the preacher an estimate of the average income of his local church. This, that seems to make sense because the offerings of the church members should be based on their income. My son is a full-time pastor, and his church pays him each year based on the pay scale from the local school system. That way he is rewarded for his education and years of service. Well, that's interesting. I've never heard of a preacher having his pay determined based upon what the local school system pays its teachers. But I think what that says is that that's, that's a judgment, and that's how some people are making the judgment in that, in that local church as to what they would pay their preacher. It obviously is a judgment call. What is what is appropriate, what is enough, what's too much. And those are the kind of decisions that have to be made. And I think the elders of the church would make those kind of decisions. But it's a judgment thing. There's nothing in the Bible that says uh, this is exactly the amount that you should pay the preacher, no more, no less. And so it's left to the discretion of those who make decisions. But uh, discretionary things, expedient things, require good judgment. You know, and if the preacher is, is at poverty level and just simply doesn't have enough to subsist on, can't supply his family with their needed provisions, then that would say bad judgments are being made on the low end of the scale. If a preacher is living an extravagant lifestyle, driving around in Rolls Royces and living in mansions and gold dripping all off of him, gold jewelry dripping off of him, we would say, Obviously, there's some bad judgment being made on the high end of the of the spectrum, uh, and I think 
I don't know what's too much, but I know it when I I couldn't tell you what's too much paper preacher, but I know it when I see it. I, you know that we could use that kind of expression, and and obviously there are plenty of the of the TV evangelists and so forth who've gone to the extreme and and, and have enriched themselves in the process of what they do. Along these lines, Don has written in and says, I don't believe it is scriptural for preachers and churches to negotiate salaries because the preachers will be chargeable to the church and may compromise their preaching in fear of losing their salary, cars, houses, and insurance. However, I do believe it is scriptural for a congregation to pay a preacher in the form of a modest offering, and it is also scriptural for the preacher to accept it, but only if his conscience isn't offended by the amount and the motive. If a preacher feels he is being paid extra to keep the peace and not run people off, and it would be wrong for him to accept anything. Well, there are some concerns there that Don raises that are accurate, Dad, but uh, wouldn't believe it would be sinful for a, che- a preacher to have a salary, but it would be a danger that he would be tempted to compromise. Well, that's why we got to make some judgments about the men who do the work. If they if they have a hirelings mentality, in other words, they're just in it for the paycheck, then they are going to compromise the truth in order to keep people from being upset with them or possibly losing their salary. We don't want that kind of guy in the pulpit anyway. If that's if, if if we determine that that's the kind of fellow he is, he shouldn't be preaching for any amount of money, you know, regardless of whether it's a lot or a little. And so we we got to we got to determine his basic character and his commitment to the word. Uh, but you've heard of preachers who would compromise. Sure, there are plenty of them, and I think Don's right. And if if we if we recognize that a preacher is compromising so that he can keep his job and keep his pay, then get him out of the pulpit. Uh, the pay is not the only problem. There's plenty of other problems that would say get him out of the pulpit. Um, when Don says, I believe it's scriptural for a congregation to pay a preacher in the form of a modest offering, and it's also scriptural for the preacher to accept it, he, he himself is acknowledging that there is some judgment involved there as to what is appropriate. And and so that's where we have to leave it. Certainly there's a scriptural authority. I think the key verse there is 1 Corinthians 9.14. There's scriptural authority for paying the preacher. Judgment's going to have to be exercised. Good judgment's going to have to be exercised in determining what is a fair and reasonable amount in order to make it possible for him to continue to do his work. All right. Well, some good comments tonight, Dad, and uh, heard from several people, and including Patrick, who disagree with us. We do appreciate his input tonight. Yeah, I hope, Patrick, if you're listening tonight, uh, uh, still listening tonight, I hope that you'll continue to participate. Uh, you know that we disagree on some of these things, but we keep studying together. And hopefully we can come to agreement over time as to what the Bible teaches in such matters. All right. We appreciate you listening to the program tonight. And if you have any questions about the things discussed, again, you can call us anytime at 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeu.com is the email address to use with any questions or comments you might have whenever you're listening to this program. Be sure to contact us if you have any questions about the things that we've discussed. We hope you'll make plans to be back here next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word, the Bible, live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College 
College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.